In light of the ongoing protests following the police killing of George Floyd, in this episode, I'll be having an important conversation about anti-black racism here in Canada and in the United States with three accomplished black colleagues who are also guests of mine on the Marilyn Dennis Show. Chef Roger Mooking, hairstylist Janet Jackson, Chef Bianca Osborne. Roger is a celebrity chef, restaurateur, television host, author, and Juno Award-winning recording artist. You know him from the cooking shows Everyday Exotic, Heat Seekers, Man Fire Food, and Man's Greatest Food. Janet is a celebrity hairstylist and national on-air beauty expert. When Janet's not on set, she continues to perfect her craft at her salon Juju Hair Studio. Bianca is a professional chef, national media personality, and a mindset coach who helps women achieve their dreams. So please welcome Chef Roger Mookie. Hairstylist Janet Jackson. Hello. Janet Jackson, hairstylist. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. And then there's Chef Bianca Osborne. Nice to see you. Hello. Nice to see everyone. Our our familiar faces on this show. Thanks for taking part in this conversation. Um, I want to ask all of you. Roger, I'm going to start with you first. How are you feeling? Uh, How am I feeling? You know, uh, I'm very frustrated. Um, tired, angry, uh, but at the same breath, uh, I'm used to it, you know, so it's kind of another day. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I'm just a little bit more exhausted and a little bit more angry than normal, um, but this is, you know, I can't turn off my color of my skin, so I got to walk around and deal every day, so it's another day. Janet Jackson, how about you? For me as well, I, I'm going to have to agree um, that it is another day for me. And um, last week, I was more so very frustrated um, in terms of everything that I was seeing on social media, in the media. Um, it's very hard to ignore what's happening right now. It's very in our face. And so... It was very, very, very heavy. Um, But I, too, am so immune to this that it is just another day, another incident. And so I can't say that I'm, you know, any different in terms of who I am today and how I feel. Wow. Uh, Bianca, what about you? Just another day? I mean, I do have to echo that same sentiment. I think all black people in Canada and in America, we get used to just sort of like moving on from it. But I will say my feelings are mixed this time because I feel, I I don't know, I can only speak for myself in this conversation and I will only speak for myself. But in this instance, it does feel different. I see people who I've never seen before having conversations about race, tough conversations, talking about it with their parents. And so while this is exhausting and feels like we're always on a hamster wheel of like outrage and then calms down something else to be outraged about, this time feels like it isn't just black people being outraged by it. It's uh, the people who we want to bring in as allies are also outraged. And that makes me feel hopeful, though exhausted. Now, here's a statement for all of you. Racism does not exist here in Canada. How about that? Many Canadians think that racism doesn't exist here in Canada, or it's worse in the United States. So, Roger, (coughs) 
You're first up to address uh, that. Well, okay, so I came to Canada in the late 1970s, like many uh, people from all over the world with the original Trudeau letting everybody in the doors, right? So we came in, and my family moved to Edmonton, Alberta. I'm born in Trinidad and Ooh. Tobago. Um, so we moved to Edmonton, Alberta, and, you know, Albia, Edmonton, 19, late 70s, was a very different place. Early 80s was a very different place um, than it is today, and it was a very different place than Trinidad, where we're coming from, right? So, you know, mm-hmm. speaking to racism, my brother was called Packy. We were called N-word, running home from school, fighting people all the time to defend ourselves, trying to figure that whole thing out. I could tell you countless stories, Marilyn, in, in the workplace as an adult, uh, working in some very established, huge multinational corporations. Um, one day I walked into the, to give you an example, one day I walked into the staff um, kitchen to eat lunch, and I noticed on the board outside the staff kitchen is all the executive chefs. Every year they do a picture of all the executive chefs across the, the company. There wasn't one person in that company who looked like me. So I went, I left the lunchroom, I went to my uh, executive chef of, of that establishment. Mm-hmm. And I asked him, I said, yo, chef, can I have a moment of your time? I have a question, you know. So I said, chef, I know this, like, uh, I like this company. I think I can move up in this company. But I can't help but notice that all the people on the board downstairs, I can't see one person who looks like me. And y'all got you know, places in the Caribbean and like, all over the world, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he, he didn't, without a pause, he stopped and he says, well, it seems that y'all just aren't that interested, right? And this was like, I can't go any higher in the chain of command for me up in, in that establishment. This is a corporate environment. I'm an adult at this point. I've mm-hmm. graduated from school. I graduated at the top of my class. I mm-hmm. worked full time. Like, I worked my tail off, you know, and I get yeah. there and, and he's telling me, he's telling me you don't seem that interested. Dude, I'm in your office telling you that I'm interested. <laughs> yeah. So what happened after that? What happened after that? Did you stay uh, a little bit longer or did you say I made a the company? Well, I realized that it's like, you know, and this is one instance of many things throughout my life I could give you just myriad of things, but this is, you know, I guess somewhat recent history that's that's relevant, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, what did I do? I, I immediately realized, well, this is a waste of time here, and I'm never going to work for anybody ever again. And that's what I made a resolve to be my own business. And that's what you're doing and doing it so well. Um, Bianca, what about you? Bianca Osborne. I've, I've experienced some, but also I have become really conditioned as just maybe a like dealing mechanism of just like, pushing it aside, you know, just thinking that person's just like an expletive or whatever and just like moving on. But of course racism exists in Canada. I mean, we we can't, if we're going to face this issue as a country and as a nation of what I legitimately believe are full of good people, then we have to look at some of the hard things and saying racism and like that word is triggering for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But until we can admit to our own and own up to our own stuff as Canadians and we can't really face it. And I also want to say that in this conversation, 
I know we're talking about black people, but I do not want our indigenous people to get left behind in this conversation because this also racism is also affecting them. And I think that mm. if we are going to start to build humanity around this and humanity as a country, which I truly believe that we are, then we have to just mm -hmm. look at like some of the dark stuff. I mean, nobody's perfect. No nation is perfect, but what will make us better like united right. and as a group is that if we can all shoulder the burden of figuring this out. But Bianca, and I think that that's a great statement to make, but your experience, you're both, isn't it interesting that you and Roger Edmonton and yeah, Antonian from Edmonton. Well, Right. Oh, what, was, what was, yeah. Did you not know that? <laughs> I will let you know that connection. And I'm also oh, Trini um, Roger. So go. Oh! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, so your experience with with racism in Canada in Edmonton. Um, I know that your stepdad uh, was is is white. Yeah. So I think that definitely has changed my experience walking through life. And I think when we talk about something like racism in Canada, it's hard to articulate like something as big of an mm. issue as that as just like a black woman, because race in Canada isn't race in Canada. To me, it's just my life and how I live my life. And I think mm. that's why it's important that we are having these conversations and sharing because hearing one black person's story doesn't mean you've heard all of them, you know, hearing Rob's right. story about Edmonton isn't my story about Edmonton, you know, growing up in Edmonton, I, one of my mom's really good friends, you know, like all many of my mother's good friends were white. My stepdad is white. We like blended race throughout. And I mean, it's hard to articulate something because it's just been my life. And so looking mm. back upon reflection on it and looking for moments of racism, of course they're there, but I've also mm. struggled in my life because I do have so many people who are white and who probably aren't having these conversations. And that can be a struggle with me because it's hard to bring it up because it is a tough conversation for blacks, for whites, for everyone. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. again, my experience wasn't necessarily that of like being overtly experiencing racism, but maybe that's because of the influence of white people in my life. I, I, I can't say for sure, but Okay. It's like a vulnerable mm -hmm. conversation to have because it's also like I can empathize with you, Marilyn, and not knowing what to say and not wanting to say the wrong thing because I don't want to offend anyone in my community, especially because everyone's experience is different. And so, you know, I'm guilty mm -hmm. of just like not saying anything because of that. Janet, thank you for sharing that. Janet Jackson, uh, what, what, tell us about your experience. Um, I do want to address what you first said in terms of um, racism does not exist in Canada. Um, and I am actually offended that there are so many people that believe that. And that's a huge problem. And that continues to be the problem. Is it worse here in Canada? Absolutely. Um, with America, with being in the United States, it's very in your face. And with here in Canada, it's hidden, it's systemic. And so your poll um, or your views in terms of where you got that information proves that it's worse here in Canada because people don't even realize that it exists. And that's a huge part of the problem. Um, mm -hmm. I've experienced racism myself. I mean, hello, and not only am I, um, I'm, a, I'm a female and a person of color. And so I have two um, I guess whammy's against me. And so 
you know, we do, I do face racism often in the workplace day to day. And uh, it, it just becomes, it's definitely exhausting and dealing with it, I believe has made me a stronger woman today. I feel as though the racism that exists made me who I am. And it, it, it's unfortunate at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I don't want to say that there was a poll, but it was some statements that were given out not gotcha. too long ago. Yeah. And it said mm -hmm. that many Canadians think that racism doesn't exist here. And I appreciate your mm -hmm. uh, contributing to that. George Floyd's death mm -hmm. has reignited anger against racial injustice around the world. So does this time, does this moment in time feel different for you? Janet, does it? Um, it is definitely different because, you know, we have all these platforms. We have social media platforms that gives us everything. It gives, it, it gives the experience to, it makes us feel like we're actually there living it and feeling it. And so it makes it, it is different. Um, I mean, we had the incident or, or, you know, back in about 1992, I believe, with Rodney King. It was mm -hmm. the same kind of thing, um, police brutality, um, the riots, the destruction, all of that. Um, it's different. It's different because I feel as though now we're in a different time where people are open to conversation. People are open to hearing and understanding and trying to make change. Um, I'm just hoping that with all of this being done and said that this is not something that's going to be temporary. I think I'm hoping that mm. all that we're trying to do is going to be permanent. And, you know, I don't want to have to say 10 years from now, be sitting in the same position and having the conversation as, is this different? You know, um, mm. to me, it's all the same. Roger Mooking, is this moment in time different for you? I think with, What's interesting about this time is that I think we're seeing more people from more walks of life, from more backgrounds, from more socioeconomic uh, conditions coming together around this, this particular idea right now mm -hmm. with this particular case, right? Um, with mm -hmm. previous things, you know, you could see that there were centralized Rodney King riots, reverse centralized black community thing. Um, and you can go on and on and on. Ahmaud Aubrey, you, you know, the black community trying to raise up and be really upset about that. Uh, Omar Yatim, all, all that, right? Um, and I don't want to diminish the, the incidents and all these people that have died because of this, this uh, what we live with every day. But... <clears throat> This time, I do feel that there's just more people. You have the entire world. You see the demonstrations in France. People weren't demonstrating in France when Rodney King happened um, or Ahmaud Aubrey. Um, uh, so we're seeing the entire world. We're seeing a lot of white people out there, Asian people. I've seen Jewish people out there. <laughs> I'm seeing Muslim people out there. I'm seeing everybody from all walks of life, and every economic standing coming out and representing because, and I don't know what, what precipitates that. Why is this one different this time? Maybe we saw it and it really hit us all. Maybe he called out for his mother. Maybe it was just mm. so callous, the way the guy had his hands in his pocket and, and people realized for the very first time. I, I don't know. I don't know, but I do feel that this time is different in this moment for this second. I don't know if this is going to lead 
uh, next week and then everybody go back to posting <laughs> selfies because the reality of the situation <laughs> is I was listening to a news report the other day and a woman is saying, you know, her kid, uh, she's telling her kid, turn off the news. I can't listen to this anymore. Right. And mm. what really struck me about it, you know, she starts rebuttaling her parents about racism and all that. Fine. But what struck me about that was that that woman had the luxury of just being able to turn it off. <laughs> Right, right. Turn it off, and then all of a sudden they walk. Mm-hmm. I can't just turn off the black and then go and uh, try to get a loan at the bank, like, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, right. So right. I don't know if this this moment is going to live, feel like this in the same way in in a month. Um, but right now, for this second, it feels different. The people in my neighborhood are talking about it. Everybody on the street. Um, but but we'll see. You know. Right. And I'm going to ask you the same question. Thanks, Roger. I'm going to ask the same question, Bianca. Does this moment in time feel different for you? It feels different, like very different for me, because like I said before, I'm seeing people who had never taken an interest or didn't get involved in politics or didn't get involved sort of pay attention, you know, talk, ask how they can talk to their kids. You know, I was walking down my street the other day and I saw like three porches of people talking about this issue that has never, I've never seen that happen with any of the cases before. Mm -hmm. And also, I mean, to Roger's point, the Amish came out, the Amish, they don't have phones. They don't have like internet and they managed to get out and say that, look, yo, this is too much now. And I feel like it's like a groundswell. You see people in Australia, people in Syria, they've got their own stuff going on and they're even saying, this is crazy. And I feel like that has never been the case before. And I, I don't know if it's because of we're, we're all just in a pandemic and thinking very existentially, who do I want to be? What kind of Canada do I want to live in? You know, what kind of children do I want to raise to be the next leaders of this country? And because mm-hmm. a pandemic has put us all in that mindset and then this happens, I don't know if that's attributed to how it has become such a movement, but I hope it's a movement and not just a moment. Like it always tends to. You know, can I say something about that, Bianca? Yeah, yeah. I think something really interesting about that is that in this moment, I think what has really driven a big part of it, yes, social media is part of that, helping to disseminate that and making it uh, and flooding our minds with it. The 24-hour news cycle flooding our minds with it. But unfortunately, people only gonna listen when like you burn the shit down. (laughs) I don't condone people going out and burning everything down, Mm. but nobody cares unless you burn it down. And the real threat, I think this time was people felt that, Oh, they're burning down fifth Ave. You can burn down the Bronx, but you don't burn down fifth Ave. That's different. So now it becomes a situation of where I, I, not me personally, as a white person, I may feel I'm isolated and insulated from all of these things happening. All of a sudden, it's mm-hmm. coming to your back door. So the threat mm-hmm. becomes, oh, that happens over there. But, oh, snap, it's happening here now. Now this is a problem. we got to deal with this problem because now that problem is my problem, <laughs> right? And so I think people really genuinely just became afraid that it's going to come to them. It's going to come to their mm-hmm. house. It's going to come to their person and threaten their families. But my, my family has been threatened all along. I've been threatened all along. It's not, it's not new. Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. I'm living every day like this. I'm trying to build a, a corporation every day out there in the world and having to deal with a lot of people most of the time who aren't like me. And that's cool. That's, that's the beauty of the world, I, I believe, right? And I'm here to spread the love for it. But I think what really changed this time is people thought it was going to come to their backyard. And when that fear hit them that it was going to come to them, then they're like, whoa, we got to do something about this. This ain't right. It's just comfort. We got to I mean, pay I can't attention speak to those people, but I will say that like, I can only speak to my own experience in this conversation as a whole, but the people in my life who have really started to show up truly just were like burying their head in the sand, turning off the news because it was too much. And now I think because it's impossible to turn away, we don't have the distractions that we had before for them. They've been galvanized into action, not because it's on their front doorstep, but because their friend who they now are saying before they used to look at me, I don't see color, but now they're looking at you and saying, I do see your color and I do see what you've been working against. And I think that this time is different because those people are finally saying, I do see your color. I do want to like get this, like be a part of this movement with you. And like I said, I can't speak for everyone. I can only speak for the people in my life, but I mean, what has made me emotional over this time is seeing the footage, of course, but also seeing all the people who were so quiet before finally starting to talk, even you, Marilyn, to see that, to, you know, be invited to have this conversation. That's what feels different to me. And I feel like, you know, someone like you with such a platform saying to other people, like, open your eyes, this is what's happening. That will create a groundswell of people wanting to do something, not necessarily because it's the dangers on their front door, but because the awareness has come to their front door. And speaking of that, thank you for saying that, but this is uh, important to say, and this is my next question. You led into it beautifully. Um, we're in a lifestyle space in which we all work. Mm -hmm. How would you describe the diversity of this space? Roger Minking. The diversity of the space. So I operate primarily in food and beverage, um, the music industry, as well as the television industry, right? So it's, a, it's an entertainment industry. Mm -hmm. um, from the music industry standpoint, I would say that there's a lot of uh, diversity across the platform, but the power is still held um, by the people who not necessarily are the people who are the, the creators of the, of the music, right? Um, if you, I look at the lifestyle television space, I can see that, like, you, for instance, have a very diverse uh, panel, right? And I look at the people who I go to different television sets uh, for different television shows that I go through all over North America and the world. Um, and again, I see very few people who look like me or, or even that represent the population ratios, diversity of the population in the in the power making decisions um, in the executives. So like I, I walk on many sets on television sets all over and um, you know, the, the, the most diverse set I've ever seen in my life is Guy Fieri mm -hmm. Guy's Grocery Games. I walked oh, on yeah, the nice. Guy Fieri Guy's Grocery Games and it blew my mind. It was like 60% everybody else but white. 70% the camera people, the executives, the ADs, all those people, right? And I look at that, I look at that guy, it's like, wow, you know, you wouldn't look at that guy and think that he's doing it like this, but he's doing it like that. And he doesn't, nobody knows. 
He doesn't tell nobody about that. I'm telling you right now, because I was there. I saw it. But he's not mm-hmm. waving that flag. He's just doing that flag, right? So in the television yeah, space, I yeah. still see that, that discrepancy. Mm-hmm. Um, in the food and beverage space, uh, there are very few um, black operators of, of businesses. As you know, the access to credit and financial resources are significantly diminished for people of color. Just being able to, to, to get the access to, to the loans, the credit, the financial backers, to meet those people, to get those conversations going. The access is just a different ballgame. So you don't see the people, but you see a lot of people who are working in the restaurants, right? You go to restaurants all over America, and I go to a lot of restaurants in America, filming behind the scenes there, and I see... 80, 90% of the people working in the, in the kitchens of the restaurant are either Mexican or black. Uh, but then the front facing customers are a lot of them, but primarily are white, right? And, and the executive and the ownership teams are white. So, uh, yes, there is a diversity, but where power and centralized control happens, there's still a severe mm-hmm. lack of diversity, right? It, I, I, there was a story that I heard that you were telling when you were on a, a truck stop. And you were doing a, a, a story about a truck stop. Am I right about that? That there was some conflict a story there? About a truck stop. Yeah, I might be wrong. Uh, Maryland, I've traveled. You no, know, I've traveled like America for uh, almost a decade filming television shows. Um, with one of my shows, I travel every nook and cranny of America, the back parts of Texas, the back parts of Alabama, Carolinas, all those places. <clears throat> Maryland, I've had people tell me, we got guns out here, boy. I've had people tell me I should be swinging from a tree by a rope. I've had people flash me oh their swastikas and their guns. While I'm on, I'm on a location filming. <laughs> right people, the people who are there, right? I've had people just tell me in just the most crazy situations in Maryland. Like, this is just mm. last couple of years ago this stuff was happening, right? So... Um, so no, you're not wrong, but those things happen. They're very real and we've had to change how we do things for these shows and how I vet locations and uh, what my comfort level is around going to places or or not going to places. And if I show up at a place and I don't feel right, I leave Mm -hmm. and the production Mm has got to deal with the repercussions of me leaving. Like, I go home. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. 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 Janet Jackson. Diversity in the space. Um, Diversity in the space. Do you have a diverse um, team in terms of the experts? Yes, you do. Do you have a diverse team in terms of, um, you know, the behind the scenes, the cameramen, the crew, all of that? Yes, you do. Is it equal? I would have to say no. I would have to say that yes, in terms of, you know, having us sprinkled here and there, it exists. But um, even for the television show, I have people approach me all the time and say, you know, I wish I can see more um, segments about curly hair. I wish I can see more segments about um, the hair struggles that I'm going through. Um, I wish I can see makeovers of people that look like me. Um, And it's something that the show does I just think that it's not enough. It's not enough to have everyone feel like they're included. Um, In terms Mm -hmm. of even the workplace, you know, we are not seeing enough of us 
you know, um, in terms of the crew and the team. And I think that mm-hmm, mm-hmm, if there mm-hmm. were more, if it, if it was more diverse, we then, it would be a trickle effect. We would then understand what the lifestyle show is missing. We would understand what type of topics we should be talking about. I, I think it's a win-win situation if it was a little bit more equal. Thank you for saying that. Thank you for pointing that out. Mm-hmm. All right, Bianca. Tell the um, truth so, in this space. Uh, <laughs> always. You're free um, to talk. For myself, I've been an entrepreneur since I graduated from culinary school in 2009. So <laughs> I don't I, I've, I don't know. I can't speak to what goes on in corporate structure. But in terms of like seeing people like myself on TV in the lifestyle space as cooking experts with their own cooking shows, you generally only see it when it's um, like it's like pointed in terms of like, it's an urban cooking show or, you know, it's a mm, uh, black like history month something, mm. or black history month or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's mm. funny because you don't, until it's brought to your attention, like looking back as a child growing up, like it wasn't until probably reality TV started happening that I was seeing myself like a lot on television, unless it was like a black entertainment show of some kind or Oprah Winfrey. And that was it. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. I think that it's like, what happens when we start having (laughs) diversity in these top spots is that, you know, better looking black Barbies start getting made. You know, you start having books that include all kids of all races, but I, I can't speak to the diversity in like other businesses because I've always just sort of been like a solo entrepreneur and that potentially has shielded me from some of this like discriminatory stuff or at least having it outwardly done to me. But I do generally believe that if in some situations, if there was someone who was white who had all the same things as me and then Mm. myself, I, I can't say whether that person would get it over me, but I mean, history would tell us that probably, and I can't deny that. And so I think, again, diversity is more than just having the experts on your show or having the people behind the camera, but it's the people making the decisions about what segments are getting made, about what TV shows are getting made, about who's getting cast in the TV shows. Because, you know, even speaking to like film and television, often it's like Mm -hmm. one place for a black person or one place for an Asian person or no places for indigenous people. And it's like, we feel like we're, you know, it's, it creates competition with our own communities because it does feel like it's like me or you, babe. And that is where I think diversity Mm. will help to start to break that cycle even because it won't be about a competition. It will just be, well, we're all given the same opportunities. What makes this, these conversations difficult to have Janet Jackson? It it makes it difficult because there's a belief that it doesn't exist in terms of racism here in Canada Um, It makes it difficult because we are so used to how life is right now with racism kind of just in there being the norm. Um, And then what really makes it difficult is when you try to have these conversations, then people start comparing their lives and their, um, you know, views in terms of how they've been treated in the past or, you know, they, they want they want you to understand that they've been through it too, in terms of another race. And I think it's unfair. I think that, you know, um, in having this conversation, the whole point is to have people listen. 
And when people aren't listening and when people are comparing and when people are shoving other ideas, um, you know, into the conversation, then that's what makes it really uncomfortable. When they do that and they're going back to themselves, it's because it's comfortable for them to speak about themselves. And you're saying mm -hmm. we're not talking about that. That's that. Am I getting clarity exactly. on that? That's what you're saying? We're talking right now about people of color. And yes, there are other yeah. issues with other races. But then, you know, we always feel as though to kind of buffer out the situation, we have to include other races in the conversation as well. And I think that mm -hmm. it's important when having the conversation that we address the race at hand. Every race has their own issues in terms of how they're being treated. But, you know, mm -hmm. if we're talking about people of color and the problems that they're facing, I think that it would be more um, effective for people to actually listen and not compare to other races and other issues that we're having. Roger Mooking. Why is it uncomfortable? Um, I think that in a lot of instances, you know, first of all, humans desire comfort, first of all. So we always will seek yeah. towards comfort first and foremost, right? Um, the other thing is, is that you, you have the convenience of opting in or opting out. So now you're, you're, you're faced with a situation where if you opt out, you you look really insensitive to your own peers, right? So now you have to opt unwillingly into a conversation and that immediately puts you out of your, your comfort zone as a human being, right? Mm -hmm. Then you have to face the reality of your own upbringings, you know, from whatever mm -hmm. part of the spectrum you come from, you have to face your history, you have to face how your parents brought you up, what did they teach you, what did they instill in you, how did you go through school, how, you know, how are you in your workplace, do you speak up when you see stuff happen, et cetera, et cetera, and you have to face yourself. So I think a, a large part of what the discomfort is, is that people have to face themselves, right? Now, the other aspect yeah. of it, if I may be so um, obnoxious to be, presume uh, uh, as a black woman, right? As a black woman, if you speak out, then you're the angry black woman. So it's hard for, as a black woman, to have that conversation earnestly, time after time. Because you could talk about it every day, all day, actually, right? But if you do that, then you're pigeonholed as being the angry black woman. And then no other people want to come around you because you're the angry black woman all the time. And then you become isolated and ostracized for being that person. And then you're uncomfortable because you're making other people, well, other people are uncomfortable because of what you're saying to them, right? So I think that it, it, it's a myriad of things um, mm -hmm. about, about discomfort. And I think that everybody is just trying to be mindful and bite their tongue and not say the wrong thing or not be overbearing with, uh, with, with what they're taking, their position. Uh, for me personally, it's not an uncomfortable conversation. I have these conversations with my crews all the time. Sometimes they're very serious conversations. Sometimes they're joke, joking, flippant comments in the middle of doing a take of a show or like I'm um, shooting and all of a sudden I realize I'm on a slave plantation. I'm like, wow, that's interesting. We're shooting on a slave plantation. That's cool. <laughs> right? Mm, mm, <laughs> and the whole conversation, mm. the whole conversation comes up. And so my crew hears it all the time. They're so sick of hearing it. They just think I'm the obnoxious guy who uh, who got something to say all the time about it. But the reality is I just see things all the time. If they're presented to me, I'm just bringing it to light. Uh, 
to maybe make them have something to think about as well, right? And to move from right. there. And so now we have a bunch of those people that have been saying stuff for years about. Now they're coming to me going, oh, Raj, you know what? You were right. I'm like, I, I, I'm not trying to be right or wrong. I was just telling you. You just got sick of listening. Yeah. Now you want to listen. Now, now all of a sudden, everybody said you got to listen. Shut up and listen. So now you want to listen. Okay, so listen. That's cool. I'll spit it back at you again. But I'm going to tell you the same stuff I've been telling you for a decade. Wow. Bianca, why is it difficult to have these conversations? I think it's difficult to have these conversations because you have to confront yourself and your own biases and the own, the privilege that you might have experienced in your life. You have to look at where you have to speak up, maybe where you haven't spoken up. And no one wants to look at themselves negatively or look at their family or their upbringing or anything negatively. That's just like to Roger's point, like you don't want to be uncomfortable, but these are uncomfortable conversations because this is a really dark topic. And a lot of dark things are in the past that have to do with this topic. And so it's not meant to be comfortable. That's just like something we have to Mm -hmm. accept about this process that it's uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. These are going to be uncomfortable conversations. When you talk to your children about it, it's going to make them uncomfortable, but that's just like a part of this process. It just is. And unfortunately Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in these conversations with white people, my voice means way less than another white person's. And so when they take on the burden and the weight of having these uncomfortable conversations, I think that's when we're going to be able to start to move the needle forward because those those voices in some circles are listened to more. And if they're talking about the change that needs to be made, hopefully those people will listen to them. The white soccer mom is the golden child. <laughs> really. It, it, they, yeah. they are so protected. And, you know, so if, if the white soccer mom was to take up a position and to defend it, a black people or, or other people... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like you're saying, Bianca, people will listen. You know, it's very interesting. I was looking, there was a mm-hmm. protest going on. Police were coming at this group of black people. This group of white women stood in front of the, the, the black people and the police stopped. They didn't know what to do anymore. It's like, we can go after those people behind you, but that one looked like my mom. And that one looks like my sister. I can't go at those people. And they stopped. They didn't know what to do anymore. So this is what yeah. I what I mean the white soccer mom is the golden child, right? Yep, gotcha. So now I'd like to talk about how we can help bring about change. Bianca, where do we start? Well, like I mentioned earlier, I empathize with people seeing these images and wanting to start the conversation, but not knowing how, not wanting to say the wrong thing. And so, I mean, understanding who you can reach out to, how you can help in monetary ways and in ways that aren't monetary. And so what I've done and given to the show is a document that has podcasts, that has books for kids, for adults. I also have um, a document that has a bunch of ways that you can reach out to your corporation to ask for more diversity. You can reach out Mm. to your MPs, you can reach out to your premier, our prime minister, and just start the conversation going on a higher level because those are things that you can do that are outside of donating to causes because you maybe don't know where to donate. Mm -hmm. First, educate yourself. And so I think the way forward is first asking yourself those tough questions and how you can do that and learn to have those Mm -hmm. conversations is through some of the documents that I've shared, but also just not 
closing your eyes, not closing your mm -hmm. ears. If a person of color is telling you something <laughs> bothered them or telling you something that happened to them, don't minimize it. Don't tell them, oh, it'll be fine. It's okay. Don't cry. Don't worry about it. Just save space for that conversation because once you start mm. listening to stories, because there's so many different stories and experiences of people of color, once you start hearing those stories and really hearing them, then this cause becomes yours because we become friends and we start having the conversation. And so I think just educating yourself. And so I've given some resources for people to do that. Thank you for doing that. Uh, listening is such an art, isn't it? We have to uh, really work on that. Janet Jackson, how can we bring about um, change? I, for first and foremost, uh, for people of color, we need to start speaking up. We need to start sharing our truths. And in order for things to change, we have to speak up. We've gotten so used to not saying anything. And that in itself is a huge problem. You know, with me even becoming immune to racism now because I'm so used to it, that's a problem. And so that's a start for change. We need to speak up. We need to ask for whatever it is that we feel we deserve, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And then in terms of someone receiving that, it is again, you know, what Bianca said about listening and understanding and receiving it, you know, rather than making excuses and trying to schluff it off like it's nothing or just sweeping it under the rug because <laughs> that's what we do, right? And that just makes the problem worse. And so listen and then educate yourself, educate. A lot of, Right now, you know, the thing is white people are coming to me and asking me what to do. And I can appreciate that. But now you're giving me another burden, you know? Mm. And so I feel mm. as though it is up to you, if you really want to make change, to educate yourself on all that is going on. And then maybe coming to me as a person of color and asking my opinion as to the conclusion you came to after you've educated yourself. And so with that being said, Marilyn, I thank you for even giving us the platform to speak out and speak our truths and to try to address the problem at hand. Can I say one more thing? Um, Absolutely. I also think that, mm -hmm. you know, allyship is a word that is being used like en masse right now. And I think being mm. an ally is, you know, reaching out to your MPPs, reaching out to your premier, talking to your place of work. But allyship starts like at home. Allyship starts if you <laughs> see your neighbor that is saying something that's just out of pocket about black people. You say, yo, that's that's not right. And you call them in that moment because again, as an ally, especially a white ally, your voice matters more in this conversation than mine. If I walk up and say, don't say that, to Roger's point, I could be labeled as the angry black woman. But if mm. my white blonde friend, and I have many of them, is the one that says, hey, man, that's wrong. Don't say that. Or questioning them to sort of like help them see the root of what they're doing. That is where allyship really starts. And that's how this movement becomes like a thing is that people are not just yeah. doing it for performative Instagram or to show their right. receipt because they donated or say I sent mm -hmm. a message, but it's like, what are you doing every single day? If your boss says something that is racial, just to you, not even to a person of color in the room, just says it to you. You call them in those moments. Cause it's not even okay. There. Right. That's right. what we do next. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Thank you, Janet, yeah. uh, for, uh, for saying what you said too. Now, Roger, how can we help bring about change? How can you help me, Doctor? Can I ask a question? 
So Marilyn, <laughs> I know that over all of these years, you've been very apolitical your entire career, right? What is it yep. that changed in you this time that made you say, you know what, this time is different. I'm going to change that narrative for myself, for my audience, and open this conversation. What happened in you? Well, it, it was before this happened, actually, when somebody said to me something um, that was uh, racist, um, and I was uh, shocked by the person who said it, and I said something back. Now, are we speaking anymore? No. And then this situation happened, and I thought, um, I got, you know, I got strength from um, uh, the the fact that people are saying this is not an easy conversation. I hope I'm not uh, saying anything wrong, but I felt really good about speaking out, and I really felt good about um, seeing that people were talking about it. This situation, I, I, I watch the news all the time. And when I witnessed what I witnessed with George Floyd, and I, I saw the different angles of that being shot, mm -hmm. and people were standing by, and one gentleman said, I'm black, and I was yelling at them, but they weren't listening. That changed for me. That made it really real. How that was really, that different? That, really, that scared me. How was that? different than Rodney King for you or other situations similar um, like this? Uh, Why is this? Well, like, I don't, I don't have an answer for, for you on that one. I, I, I don't have an answer for you. Prior to all of this was the, the, the young man that was chased down by three guys and two trucks. Yeah, and I, I, that's right. And I thought, what is happening? You know, when you're sitting in front of the TV and you're going, what is happening? You, you were, you, when you said it's not in our neighborhood, it, it's like I'm watching the news and I'm thinking, I'm really paying attention to this news. Is it because of the pandemic? I don't know. But why is this happening? And I think it's changed for me too because it is now, it's today. Maybe it's because I'm 62. Maybe because mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm more experienced and I don't take the shit anymore. Yeah, I don't, no, I don't look, want look, to. Very no. valuable. I, lo I love yeah, that. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. You not, know what that comes not, to, Marilyn? What's that? You know what that comes to is this is that's change. You know what that change is? is that you felt love and compassion. That's what it is. So mm. if you want to change my whole approach, and I'm not saying it's the right approach, I don't know, right? My approach is I vaccinate with love. I don't react, I proact. <laughs> I vaccinate right. love. Just vaccinate and load it up. Load it up. Everybody around me, every interaction that I have. I mean, if somebody's coming at me stupid, I'll, I'll defend myself. I'll come back at them right. stupider. Like, you know, I, you know, that's one thing. But I vaccinate with love. So if you're looking for change, you look around and go, okay, what in my life have I done bad? What can I do to affect that? And how do I mm -hmm. vaccinate love in everything and everywhere I go? Because, you know, those little things to vaccinate like that, over time they build up. People are saying this is a new moment in time. This is a new moment in history. We have a unique opportunity right now to make a dynamic change. Yes, this is true, but it's not a new moment in history. We've lived this moment in history yeah. many times over 
many civilizations that have come and gone, many eras of civil rights movements, black people, indigenous. We've been here before. We just have to look at the case and understand how do we not do it again? The humans just don't seem smart enough yeah. to do that. So take the smart out of it and put your heart into it, right? Take the smart out, right. put the heart. And vaccinate with love. Indoctrinate. And if you love something like that, and if you love, even if somebody coming at you with hate, right? And you defend yourself against the hate, but you leave them with one little nugget of love. You, they have to think about themselves. It's like, I went at that guy, but he's not that bad a guy because he still gave me love. Then they got to mm. think for themselves, right? Mm-hmm. They got to change mm-hmm. themselves. And also, too, when you're faced with mm-hmm. someone who's saying something that is racist in front of you, you know, a, like one, like a psychological way to work, help them work it out, too, for themselves. If they say something racist, be like, why do you think that? Has a black person or it's like someone says, you know, something negative about a black person. Like, why is that? Why would you say something like that? Do you have an experience? Like, because you, you can see it. As, and this is more to our white allies when they're having these conversations. Because right. I've had white people say when they when they kind of pull it out of people that way, which being like, you shouldn't say that, which they shouldn't say that. But sort of hitting them with, like, logic and, like, facts. It's like, then it's then it becomes irrefutable. And so having tough conversations is also being strategic about those conversations, too. And making sure that you keep, like, again, white allies like talk to them and give facts. So it's like, if they're saying something, you know, negative about a black person that just simply isn't true, just ask them like, why would you say something like that? Have you had that experience? Cause I haven't. Yeah. And it just, again, creates a mm-hmm. conversation that promotes listening because what, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't, I, I want people to start leading with humanity and not hate <laughs> with all of this because it's like right. the internet is just right. full of haters. And even having this conversation, mm-hmm. we all open ourselves up to, the haters coming at us for that. And so it's like, if mm-hmm. we can just pull ourselves out of like race and just see each other as like, like black person, Bianca, who is just trying to be heard or black person, Roger, or black person, Janet, that is just trying to be heard and taking our burden as your own as well. I think that's how we're going to get mm-hmm. out of this. I really do. Janet. Okay. Sorry. Keep talking. What? That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> And I don't want to do this because it's not just love, right? There's love and then there's action too, right? And and love is an action. But let me step away from it one second, right? Remove the love for a second. Indoctrinate with love all day, every day. That's the first thing. But more importantly, if you're in a position of power, hire a black CEO. Hire a black CFO, head of business affairs who's indigenous. Hire a person who's actually making decisions, controlling money, and, and doing, can affect change as from the top down to trickle down throughout your organization if it's an organization, mm-hmm. throughout your community if it's a community you're trying to do. Empower those people to do that because you have to also realize a big part of what happens at play here is a socioeconomic position. If you can put people in a better socioeconomic position and financial position so that when they look for better health outcomes at the hospital, they can afford to get those medications. They can afford, because, yo, they're the CEO, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. No, I'm not a middle manager. I'm a CEO. I can, I can tell the company, yo, we're going to spend more money on better health insurance for our employees, and this is how it's going to affect the bottom line, and we're going to get it from here, but a better employee is going to have a better, more fruitful company, and a, a, if you have um, 
minorities in, in, the, in that organization who are in a better social, financial, economic position, that's going to flood throughout that community and throughout everybody's community, right? So it's not, mm-hmm, yeah, you mm-hmm. indoctrinate the love, but you have to take action. And if you're a person in power who's taken claims that they want to take action, then take that action. For instance, Doug Ford mm-hmm. just said there's no institutional racism and he had to back himself out. He only did that yeah. because people outed him, a picture of his staff and everybody on the staff is like old white people. <laughs> and he says there's no institutional racism. Well, of course, you're not even going to see it because you're surrounded by, the, by it. By it. You're, you're, yeah, you're right. uh, insulated by it, right? So if you got some power, go out there and hire some people affect different people in in the community so they can have different outcomes for themselves and their families, all while you indoctrinate and vaccinate with love every day. I love that message. I do. Janet, do you want to have anything else to add before we wrap this very meaningful and constructive conversation? Very meaningful, very constructive it is. Um, it, you know, I, I just really want to stress the fact that we need to remember all of this. Remember why we're doing it. I think that is the basis of the problem. I think we, as you know, as Roger mentioned earlier, we kind of move on afterwards and we're back to normal. And so if we actually focus on this problem and keep it in mind, keep it in the front of our minds forever and ever, amen, in that, in that, that aspect, um, I think we will have change. The problem is, you know, we forget And we need to remember why it is that we are trying to make these changes. Why are these things happening? Why? Remember why. And if we constantly remember, then, you know, we will eventually have change. Roger, Bianca, and Jenna, thank you so much for having this conversation with us today. Roger Mooking, where can we follow you? Uh, Everything is at Roger Mooking. RogerMooking.com, at Roger Mooking on all socials that you care about. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's a way to sell yourself there you go, right there and for you janet jackson where can we follow you uh for me it's at janet jackson hairstylist.com and also for social media it would be at janet jackson hairstylist or my salon at juju hair love it all right and then for chef bianca osborne <laughs> I like Roger Mooking, like to keep it easy. BiancaOsborne.com and <laughs> Bianca.Osborne on Instagram, which is the only social I care about. <laughs> ah, okay. Roger, Janet, Bianca, thank you so much for talking uh, with me today and uh, being a part of this uh, podcast. A very important discussion, very important conversation. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Be safe. Marilyn Dennis does a podcast. New episodes every week. You can download or subscribe on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.